Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. This is Vikram from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our 30th podcast. What happens when a vendor attacks a security researcher who points out security flaws in their software? On this episode, we talk about two white hat security researchers who discover multiple vulnerabilities in a vendor software system. The vendor initially ignores their concerns until the FBI gets involved. It culminates in a physical attack by the vendor COO on one of the researchers. We look at all the details around the vulnerabilities, discuss common disclosure concerns, and how the FBI has opened up a cyber fusion unit to act as a liaison between security teams and at-risk vendors. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. You've got Quantlayer here. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Not much. Uh, just in Toronto this week. Nice. So, uh, wanted to start the episode off with a look at a attack on a security researcher by a vendor. So, Fizan, you actually sent this to me a little while ago, and I just thought, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this, and I thought it'd be worth talking about, but. Yeah, the title of the report is uh, Researcher Assaulted by a Vendor After Disclosing a Vulnerability. And that title caught my eye because like, you kind of hear about this kind of stuff, not the attack by a vendor, like a physical assault by a vendor, but just researchers and responsible disclosures, right? And there's this whole idea of like white hat versus black hat security researcher. And I guess the like if you want to look at just on a very binary basis, black hat are kind of like the bad guys and white hat, they consider themselves the good guys. I'm sure there's a lot more legal definitions around the term, but it, there's very clear case when a security team is engaging in uh, what would be considered like black hat practices, like maybe they're trying to steal data and then sell it on the internet, stuff like that. And then there's white hat security researchers who, you know, the idea, I think they kind of they stumble upon a potential flaw, a security flaw in the system, and then responsibly disclose to the owners of that system, like, hey, you better take a look at this because, uh, you know, this could be concerning. This is a security risk. And responsible disclosure, I don't, like, is there an official definition of that? I always think about it in terms of, you know, you don't let the whole world know about it before you let the owner know about it, potentially be able yeah. to make a fix. I think there are some like established practices, exactly how you mentioned, where especially I think a lot of times these things get published or even like spoken about at conferences. So I think the practice is to reach out to the person, give them some amount of time to fix it. And if they basically haven't fixed it, then it's fair game to, you know, put it out into the world because that will then generally force their hand if they weren't being reasonable and fixing it in time. Right. And you know, unreasonable thing might be to just you find a vulnerability, you don't reach out, and you just you know put it out there because then that group didn't have time to know about it and fix the problem. But we see again and again that 
even with a responsible disclosure, a lot of times companies whose software is their primary product or a core part of their business don't have any system in place for dealing with vulnerability reports from like external parties, like a security researcher, and they often react very poorly when told that they have a problem. Yeah, this is the first time that at least I have come across where they responded so poorly, they physically assaulted uh, one of the security researchers. So yeah, the, the article title is from secjuice.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's titled Researcher Assaulted by a Vendor After Disclosing a Vulnerability. It's written by Guys Boulay, who is the editor-in-chief over at Security Juice. So we'll read this thing here because it's not that long, but there's so much... Interesting stuff packed into this thing. There's, I'll just start off with it. All right. Following a serious vulnerability disclosure affecting casinos globally, an executive casino technology vendor, Atriant, has assaulted the security researcher who disclosed the vulnerability at the ICE conference in London. This is the story of a vulnerability disclosure gone bad, one involving the FBI, a vendor with a global customer base of casinos, and a severe security vulnerability which has gone unresolved for four months without being properly addressed. Our story begins with two white hat security researchers, Dylan and Me9187. Um, these are these are nicknames, who were on a showdown safari back in September when they noticed what looked like a casino's player reward server with no authentication exposed to the public internet. After a little more investigation by the researchers, it became obvious that the server was supporting player reward kiosks in different casinos all over Vegas. So Faison, like right there, you know, that does sound a bit concerning. So the, they have a reward server that has data associated with uh, casino players, and that's been and has no auth on it, and it's exposed to the public internet. You would think that if it was exposed to the public internet, they would have at least some auth in place. Right. Like, you shouldn't be able to see it, basically. Right. You know, because even if you can't do anything with it, you now have the ability to get identifying information on who these players are at different casinos, which in itself is a problem. Yep. So these kiosks are made by a vendor called Atriant, who market them as a power kiosk marketing platform and sell them to casinos globally, who then use these kiosks to engage their casino customers with the loyalty reward program. The kiosks provide loyalty casino customers with a user interface they can use to register their purchases and spending at the casino, receiving loyalty bonuses in return. Bonuses can include theater and show tickets, comped hotel rooms, entries into cash prizes, and anything else a casino wants to use as part of the reward program, including offering cash back on purchases in some casino locations. So there's a handful of casinos that use this kiosk, including MGM, Hard Rock, and Caesars, and they're apparently deployed all across the country. Yeah, so I was just looking at the uh, next part is where it gets interesting because we had talked about you can identify the customers. Now it looks like these kiosks are actually uh, responsible for, you know, something of monetary value. It's not, you know, upon initial reading, I thought it was the backend systems for the slot machines or something. And it's, it's yeah. definitely not, but you know, comp hotel rooms, cashback, uh, show tickets, it's, it's still significant financial incentive to manipulate these kiosks. Yeah. And this next paragraph actually gets into all the stuff that was available. So these kiosks and the backend server communicate the personal details of their users and send data like driver's license scans used for enrollment, user home addresses and contact details, 
as well as details about user activity on encrypted over publicly accessible internet. When the researcher discovered that the unauthenticated reward server was directly connected to the kiosk on the casino floor, they realized that the API the kiosks used was wide open and extremely vulnerable to criminal abuse. So this is crazy. Yeah. Uh, Because this is like very personal identifying information. I mean, my first thought when reading this was, hey, you could probably use this to set up like fake accounts on cryptocurrency exchanges, bypass like their KYC, because you have driver's license scans and addresses. Right. Like that's, you you know, for a lot of online money transfer stuff, that's often what they use for verification. Yep. And for uh, a lot of these non-US exchanges like Binance and stuff to sign up, they ask for an ID, just even a picture of an ID. So a lot of the crypto exchanges, there's no way to prove that it's specifically you. Like you can just go get an ID and then uh, sign up for them. So uh, this way you could like, as you said, you could completely bypass those KYC issues. So the researchers told me that every single kiosk was calling home to the server in plain text and all data sent from the kiosk to the server clearly visible on the network. Because there is no SSL protection and because the API is wide open and vulnerable to abuse, it is possible to identify kiosks by their MAC address and use the unsecured API to change details, track users, and add credit to user accounts, and even spin up a kiosk on a virtual machine in order to have your own personal kiosk at home. So let's break this one down, because this is uh, it feels like this is a yeah. big brunt of the issue. So there's parts of this that make sense to me, and then there's one part that I don't understand. So obviously the SSL protection... You know, you, they're basically sending the data over the wire unencrypted, which there's absolutely no reason for to be doing that. API wide open and vulnerable. Uh, it's unclear to me whether that means that. So there's no credentials required to. You know, it's one thing to be able to read data out of the API, but to modify the actual, like, make the post requests. Yep. So if that's the case, that's a big deal. Because, yep. you know, if, if you can like essentially give yourself free hotel rooms and whatnot. And then I didn't understand because there's no SSL protection. So, it's, you know, it is possible to identify kiosks by their MAC address. So I don't understand how that bit is related to the API being open or mm-hmm. there being no SSL protection. Independently, I guess you could scan, like if you get you go into the casino, get on the network, scan for the MAC addresses, I guess you could have those and then use them, but I don't know how the there being no cell protection has anything to do with that. Yep. As far as the API point goes, there is a mention later in this, we'll get to it, but where some of the programmers who are based offshore were asking questions on like Stack Overflow and stuff. So it's possible like if they had posted examples of what their endpoints looked like, you know, there's probably a, maybe they're they're talking about something like that here. Yeah. Uh, also, one thing that struck me about that paragraph was it, it hit me. It's not just the users that are at risk here. It's also the casinos. Like, if you can comp yourself free hotel rooms, like that cuts right into casino revenue. So right. there's a lot of. I mean, basically, the lack of security here affects and multiple. Who knows? Groups. Like, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but who knows? Like, do the casinos hold any sort of liability for engaging with a vendor that is so carelessly managing their customers' data? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's a good question. 
Atrient were not segregating these kiosks into VLANs, and I think it's probably virtual LAN. Their FTP access was wide open and unencrypted, and all this was discovered using the Shodan search engine. All of it was publicly visible to anyone on the internet who knew where to look. So that's just that's just sad. Yeah, this is the first time I'd heard of this Shodan search engine, but if you read about it, it's actually pretty crazy. What is it? There's a TechCrunch article which we can add to the show notes, but it's basically a search engine for exposed devices and databases. Okay. So like anything that's connected to the internet just like gets scraped and added to its results. So basically what the device does and what ports are open. And like, it's crazy the stuff you can see, like, you know, give examples like hospital CAT scanners, random webcams. There's like a, you know, a webcam pointed at someone's goat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's, it's some pretty crazy stuff. So we'll link to that as well. But this this whole uh, showdown thing is pretty interesting. Huh, that is interesting. I guess that's what they meant by showdown safari earlier in the, yeah, in the piece. Yeah, it's basically the practice of going on showdown and just like looking for stuff. Yep. That's been like, that's interesting. Huh. Atrian is a market leader in selling these loyalty kiosks to casinos because these kiosks have been sold to casinos all over Vegas the U.S., and they have some kind of partnership with Konami to casinos all over the world. Considering that the Atrient COO, Jesse Gill, said in a media recently that they don't have a different version for different operators. We integrate all functions in a single product. There's a very high likelihood that this vulnerability affects all their customers, including their white-label partners, Konami, who rebranded Atrient's tech for sale to their own customers. Yeah, not good. Not good. And I wonder like what the diligence process was on Konami's side when they initially signed up with this. Right. Like I don't understand how some of these deals get done. Like what is the actual diligence process involved in some of this stuff? I remember like in banking, companies would pay bankers a ton of money to do basic financial diligence on a company. The reason a bank would take 7% of IPO proceeds is because two reasons. One, that they did diligence on the company that they're taking public is legit. And the second reason, because uh, they could actually give them access to capital because they have relationships with like large funds like Janus and Fidelity and so forth. And I remember doing like some of the diligence on this kind of stuff where some of it got really personal. Like one company that we took public, we had to do a background check on each of the management team members and we learned about all kinds of stuff about their family, you know, what their relationship with their siblings was like. Like it was very invasive. And I guess that's the whole point because then the lawyers actually ended up talking to the management team about this stuff and had to assure us in, in some sort of writing that it wasn't a issue of concern for the company. So if, if that kind of stuff comes up, like, you know, what's going on? Again, this isn't, you know, Konami signing a deal with Atriant. You know, maybe this was so small for Konami that it didn't matter. So they didn't spend a ton of money on diligencing this. But there should be some process involved on the diligence side. And some companies probably do it better than others. I just wonder, like, what that really looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of these cases, it's just they look at client lists. And it's like, oh, you have a bunch of big casinos using your stuff. If they're using you, you must be good. And on you go. (laughs) Or the other scenario is you do a technical audit of some sort. But I mean, we've seen our fair share of very ad hoc technical audits that are nowhere near comprehensive. 
Yeah, they're really not. The security researchers who first discovered this vulnerability, Dylan and Mean 9187, told me that the vulnerability was just the tip of the iceberg when it came to sloppy security practices as Atrient. They saw casino Wi-Fi network passwords stored in plain text, <laughs> user personal data stored in plain text, and no attempt to secure anything. Points yeah. for consistency? <laughs> Plain text is just for, I mean, there might be a few people who don't know why that's a, a big deal, but basically like it's like having your password unencrypted means someone can just like look at it in a database and see that, oh, that's your password, password one, two, three. There's no like hashing of it. There's no you know attempt to encrypt it or anything like that. So anyone with access to the personal data, user personal data, like you hear about these like database hacks all the time. Luckily, more people tend to encrypt passwords than not these days. But just imagine if all those passwords were just in plain text. So password one, two, three, you know, admin one, two, three, four, yeah, five. It just right? dramatically cranks up the consequences of a even a small, you know, security breach. Yep. It's like if you had, you know, you left your door unlocked and just inside the door on a table, you left like all of your private keys to all of your crypto, anything you've ever put in a safety deposit box, your car keys and like anything precious. So the, someone opens the door and literally everything's there versus in reality, you tend to secure those things with some additional measures. Yep. This part was kind of funny. They even found Atrian's third-party contractors based in India posting Atrian's source code on GitHub and asking Stack Overflow questions about it, an indicator which made it obvious to the researchers that security was not being taken seriously. So I don't understand what they mean in this scenario. Yeah. Because there's nothing fundamentally wrong with having your code open you know obviously you don't want to push up credentials or any sensitive information but having your like there's plenty of very secure code or security related code that's open source so being open source is not you know at odds with being secure so i didn't understand exactly what the implication was here yep so two things came to mind here for me one is that we talked about before like if they post up Okay, obviously posting credentials would be, you know, horrendous, right? Yeah. But even posting how your API endpoints are constructed, especially if your system doesn't have encryption in place, like I could see that being a security concern. Yeah. I mean, ideally there's this idea of like security through obscurity isn't really security, so that's marginal, but I guess on the like if everything is just in plain text and publicly available, that probably does add some level of protection. Yep. And the second thing was that you know we don't have access to what these questions were. Like I'd love to see this actual source code that they're posting and what the questions are about. So I am lean, still up. I'm leaning towards just uh, what's that? It's probably still up there. Oh right. <laughs> probably go find it. We just we just read this article a couple of hours ago, so we haven't had a chance to deep dive. But I, if I had to guess, I'd say better than even chance that we can still find some of this stuff. Right. Okay. So it was clear to those security researchers that Atrient had outsourced the development to India, where a significant amount of their services were being hosted, including their FTP kiosk management services and the development servers. It was obvious to the security researchers that the subcontractors were not taking even basic security steps to secure any of this infrastructure from being discovered on the open internet. 
Any thoughts here about like geography of where these servers sit and security and the fact that like all these customers are based in Vegas? I don't think so. I think it just has to do with your actual security practices. Yep. But I don't know if there's a legal component. Like I think th- from a technical perspective, no. From like a organizational perspective, not necessarily, but from a legal, there might be, um, yep. but I just don't know. This next section is uh, titled Reporting the Vulnerability. So the security research, this got, this got to really, really interesting once the FBI gets involved. The security researchers acted in good faith, followed responsible disclosure, best practices, and tried to directly contact Atriant to report the vulnerability and make them aware of how serious a problem this was. For a company like Atriant, with a global customer base and a record of talking about how secure their systems were, you would expect them to respond immediately. Unfortunately, Atriant completely ignored repeated emails to multiple executives and members to the Atriant team. Yes. It's like, this is insane because this would be like if your ATM was spitting out money like that it's not supposed to and you told your bank that it's doing that and like everyone was like just ignoring you. Yep. It's in my mind the equivalent level of just, I don't know, the, like it's the word, not malpractice, but just irresponsible incompetence. So... I think it should be called malpractice. Like malpractice is a specific okay, mal, definition: malpractice, improper, illegal, or negligent professional activity or treatment. Yeah. So, as, well, yeah. So then it should be malpractice <laughs> if you if you're you know if you're in charge of a technical product that has identifying information. Yep. Then you know this is malpractice. Yeah. I don't like. I don't get it. Like a lot of teams will act like ostriches and just pretend, stick their heads in the ground, just pretend that it didn't happen. I don't. I don't know yeah. what they're expecting. The next two paragraphs are particularly damning. Yeah. So the researchers even left messages with the contact details on the FTP server for the admins to see, warning them about the vulnerability. They made every effort to get in touch with the vendor and responsibly disclose, but they were ignored. So this is actually very dangerous because this is where I think, you know, I can't think of the specific cases, but if you find a vulnerability and you actually interact with it, like so in this case there's an unsecure ftp server so like you and i think well they left it out in public so it's fair game to put like a message on right, it right right but the law doesn't necessarily see it that way and this like there've been situations where actually interacting with a vulnerability even in a harmless way yep. to like prove that it exists but without prior authorization has run afoul of uh, cybercrime laws right. and this is like where you run into that gray hat or you know like it's well-intentioned and harmless, but the law may not see it that way. So you have to be pretty careful when you actually start, like, if you're like actually interacting with a vulnerability. Yeah, it's the white hat troll. When the white hat starts to yeah. troll, that's, that's what this is. Yeah. Atrient completely ignored the researchers, but despite following them on LinkedIn and Twitter, they clearly <laughs> had no interest in communicating with the researchers. So they're aware. Yeah, of course they're aware. They're just posting them. <laughs> the researchers then reached out to me, asked for my help in contacting Atrient, and asked me to tweet about the vulnerability on Twitter, so I helped them. Uh, that's Guy's, the writer of the article. Enter the FBI. When I sent out the tweet reporting I was working on a story about vulnerability, one which affected casinos all over Las Vegas, the tweet was noticed by the FBI's Cyber Fusion Unit, who then reached out to me for conversation. What First of all, what, what a cyber name. Fusion? Cyber Fusion? <laughs> that's like... It's like Space Force. Yeah, but even more so. This, you know, It's like, what does Fusion have to do with anything? <laughs> this particular cool FBI name. division... 
work towards connecting security researchers to vendors when vulnerabilities had been discovered. That's pretty cool, particularly in cases where the vulnerability is serious and the researchers are being ignored by the vendors. So this is like a very specific case that ha- comes up a lot. And it sounds yeah. like the cyber fusion division helps vendors yeah. and researchers get in touch. It makes sense, right? The companies that are most likely to have really ridiculous vulnerabilities are probably the ones that also don't have a good process for dealing with them. Yep. Like it probably goes hand in hand. And this will save time and money for the FBI for later. Like them getting ahead this of these. preventative measure, yeah, yeah. This preventative stuff will just, so they'll have more time to investigate more important things. They could just nip this stuff up, off at the bud. Yeah, I was asked by the FBI to put together a call with the researchers wanting to act in good faith agreed to join the call. They were scared, though. It was the FBI, after all. On that call, the researchers thoroughly briefed the FBI on what they had found and the attempts they had made to contract Atrium. The FBI sprung into action and set up a call for the next day between Atrient and the security researchers so we could all get on the phone together and make sure Atrient properly understood how serious the vulnerability was. Now that the FBI was involved, it seemed as if Atrient was finally taking the vulnerability disclosure seriously, which gave us hope that the vulnerability would be taken seriously and quickly remediated. You would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pleased to report that both the FBI did the right thing. Their sole interest was resolving what they considered to be a serious vulnerability, and at no time did the FBI lay any blame at the feet of the researchers or accuse them of anything. That, you know, that's pretty positive here. There is a yeah. lot of mistrust in the InfoSec space when it comes to the FBI, but this particular unit had the right attitude, knew their InfoSec, and wanted to help the researchers. So I would say like that's yeah. progress, right? Yeah, exactly. Because it's going back to that idea of you can do something harmless but still run afoul of the law. So I think there is that right. trepidation. Yep. I I would love to have listened to that call when they like explained that they actually left a message for the admins on their uh, on their FTP servers. I wonder if the FBI was like kind of giggling about that. That's probably. I mean, if I was in the FBI, I'd giggle about it. Maybe not. I'd probably put the phone on mute, but I'd laugh about it for sure. I mean, it's got to be a frustrating job too. It's probably like the equivalent of just dealing with people that like don't want to vaccinate. <laughs> The vendor call, the next section. The next day, I joined the vendor call with the FBI and the security researchers. Atrient was represented by Jesse Gill, their COO, and another member of staff. When the call started and everyone had been introduced, the floor was handed over to the security researchers. The researchers explained in simple terms that the kiosk and supporting infrastructure was wide open, that players' credit could be manipulated, that users' personal data, including driver license scans, was exposed to the public internet, and that you could enter casino cash prize draws with as many entries as you wanted in order to win them, all without Atrient or their developers and subcontractors noticing. And I would imagine that last one is particularly dangerous because I'm sure there's like a bunch of law, you know, Nevada Gaming Commission, whoever, there's probably a bunch of laws around those competitions being fair. And if something violates that it's probably taken pretty seriously yeah even beyond just the normal you know security and financial risk right they clearly explained to atrient how the risk of abuse was extremely high because there was no way to differentiate the legit calls from the malicious api calls in the atrient backend system leaving it wide open to malicious exploitation by criminals Atrient COO Jesse Gill asked what steps they could take to secure these services, and the researchers advised them of the urgent actions they need to take to secure their infrastructure. During the call, 
The FBI asked Atriant if they had properly notified their customers of this breach and vulnerability in their systems. Their COO, Jesse, quickly replied, let's talk about this offline, immediately closing down the question. He then blurted out, I want to own this, it's IP and what you know, and invited the researchers to a private conversation to discuss a bug bounty and NDA with them. Yeah, the best way to deal with the FBI is often to just dismiss them because they go away. (laughs) (laughs) The bug bounty call. I was not privy to this call, but I've been told by the researchers that Jesse Gill promised them a bug bounty of $60,000 and asked them to keep the incident quiet until their lawyers could drop an NDA and legal agreement for them to sign. As far as the researchers were concerned, Atriant was dealing with this in the right way, moving to secure their services, reward the researchers who reported the vulnerability with a bounty, and instructing their legal team to drop the paperwork to cover the engagement. The researchers, of course, were thrilled by this. They are both young, and it's a lot of money. Jesse Gill promised the researchers that lawyers would be in touch and send them those agreements, a promise he made again and again for months. One like a question I have around this is just uh, this process. So like if this has been going on for months and the FBI was involved, like what is, where's the, like, do you think the FBI is like checking in again? Like why, why are they not involved? I mean, they're probably not involved unless they get brought back in. I mean, I guess they acted as a liaison and they, for, yeah, they acted as liaison. And then once the two parties have agreed to sign an NDA, fix the problem and then, you know, in their mind, the ball is probably rolling towards a resolution and there's right. nothing else they can add. Yep. So without knowing that there's, you know, that nothing has happened, yep. uh, there would be no reason for them to step back in, I think. Yeah. Okay, now the next section is called the runaround. From that point on Atriant gave the researchers and they led them by the nose with the promise of money and gave them the runaround. The researchers also tell me that Atriant have made no real effort to secure their services, although they were hidden from Shodan's view. I'm told that they did take the dev servers in India offline for a short time, but they have since brought back up with the same security controls. It became clear over four months that no legal paperwork or bug bounty was forthcoming, and Atriant did not at any time ask the researchers to sign an NDA. It also became clear to the researchers that Atriant has made no significant changes to their security policies or the security of the services in that time frame. The security researchers were given the runaround for over three months, during which time they were promised a bug bounty and that the vulnerability would be resolved. So basically, they said one thing and then they just kind of disappeared. Yeah. Until they attacked the researchers. Okay, this next section is called the ICE Conference Assault. Almost four months after the initial disclosure to Atrian, the security researchers learned that the Atrian CEO, Sam Atisha, had big plans for the ICE conference in London, where the security researchers are based. Sam Atisha had planned to speak at the conference about the new facial recognition features in their kiosks that scanned user faces, uploaded the biometric data to their servers, allowing casino customers to use their kiosks without swiping their membership cards. <laughs> and I, after <laughs> Might reading as well the- just take a DNA sample right. and put that up on the internet too. <laughs> This alarmed the researchers who quite rightly identified the facial scans as a serious privacy risk for the users, especially if the backend infrastructure was not properly secured, further compounding the existing security problems Atriant had. So like, you know what comes to mind? It's possible that this was going to be a big, like 
push on the business side for Atriant as like another product they can sell into casinos. And maybe they looked into figuring out how they could uh, secure the backend better, but it's possible maybe it requires like a much larger architectural rewrite to incorporate this new feature into their like legacy system. So yeah, I don't know. What do you think? So I have a few, you know, just like off the cuff theories without knowing more. So, you know, assuming they contracted out this uh, firm to handle all of their technical infrastructure, if they're non-technical particularly, it would be very possible for them to not take this that seriously, have the meeting with the FBI, tell their backend, you know, this contractor or whoever they're working with to take care of it, and then just like not follow up. Uh, it could be as easy as that. On the you know contractor side, I would probably attribute this to incompetence. They probably didn't know they were supposed to be doing all this stuff in the first place, didn't do it, and then when they were told to fix it, weren't necessarily sure what to do, or there wasn't budget for it or what have you. Yep. So a lot of the times it's just disregard or uh, ignorance when not getting this stuff fixed. So they went along to ICE as registered attendees to try and meet with Atrian COO Jesse Gill, who had they been talking to for three months, and Atrian CEO Sam Atisha, in order to raise these concerns and look at them in the eye. When one of the security researchers, Dylan Wheeler, approached COO Jesse Gill and introduced him as the researcher who Jesse had been dealing with, Jesse suddenly lunged at the researcher and violently grabbed him by the clothes on his chest before then tearing his attendee badge away from him, telling the researcher that he didn't need it anymore and that he would keep hold of it. Dude, what is going what, what on? What a weird, weird way. Like, it would have been one thing if he just, you know, swung on him. But <laughs> he took his like, he took his, I mean? he took his badge and said he won't need that anymore. Like what? Like kind you of, can see like that? him being under trouble or about to lose his job or something, and he like swung on this guy, but like just taking his badge and saying you don't need it anymore. That's a weird, weird like assault. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't do anything. Like it's just it's so yeah. strange. Yeah. This whole incident was witnessed by multiple people, including Atrian's CEO, Sam Atisha, who said nothing throughout the whole incident. The researcher started to video the incident on his phone as soon as Atrian's COO, Jesse Gill, released him. You can see in the video below Atrian's COO, Jesse Gill, threatening the researcher with Scotland Yard before denying <laughs> that he knew him when he very obviously knows exactly who the security researcher was. And they have the video, and we'll link to the tweet. It's uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't have all of what happened, but you can tell there's like some conflict, right? And you can tell that the researcher ended up getting his badge back. But basically, did you watch it? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, okay. So basically, it starts off with uh, the CEO saying, uh, I don't know who you are, buddy. Uh, yeah, the researcher is basically asking for his badge back. And the CEO is like, I don't know who you are, buddy. You can do it. You can take it. You can have whatever you want. And then... Like, it's very obvious. You can tell, like, he's like, oh, crap, he, I'm being recorded right now. So he's just, like, pretending, like, oh, I didn't... What do you, What happened? Nothing happened. Is he <laughs> playing one of those? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> like, from a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. 
We have partial video of the incident below, and I've requested the CCTV video recordings of the exhibition hall from the ICE conference organizers. The security researcher has since reported the assault to the London Metropolitan Police, who are working with conference organizers on this incident. Dan Stone, the head of marketing for the ICE conference, told me, we take the safety of all our visitors to ICE extremely seriously. We have reported the matter to the on-site security team, and they're looking into the incident and will liaise with the police as required and what was with the scotland yard thing (laughs) i'm not gonna lie when i read that i my first thought was they're gonna get sherlock holmes involved but (laughs) it doesn't make any sense like this guy's from the u.s it's it's a weird assault and a weird uh, threat (laughs) he steals his lanyard and says should i get scotland yard involved All right, the aftermath. I have reached out to Atriant calling COO Jesse Gill personally to invite him to comment on the unresolved security vulnerabilities at Atriant. <laughs> His assault on the security researcher or anything else he wanted to say, but he hung up the phone on me. I'm reaching out to a number of Atriant customers, Caesars Entertainment, Hard Rock International, and MGM Resorts International to establish if they have had any notifications of the security breach and vulnerability from Atriant. So it's, it's, it's getting pretty serious. Like those yeah, are and this was very just large published today. So right, we'll see what the fallout is. But I like I don't see this going well for the CEO. Yep, I guess let's put it that way. And what's with the CEO like not doing anything? He's just standing there. I think that's him in the video. He's he just might like, have just been in in shock. Oh yeah, just like what? Yeah, <laughs> Scotland Yard. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't I can't parse any of this conversation. Yeah. I think one takeaway for me, like a, a new, like minus all of the the attack stuff, which is ridiculous and, and and just cartoonish, the fact the FBI has a team that tries to act as a liaison between researchers and companies, I think that's very positive for this space. Yeah, it's very forward thinking on their part. Yep. To proactively handle that. Yep. Especially because you do see, like, most of these problems are, can't say most because I don't know the metrics, but it's very often the case that, you know, people in these positions that have a pretty significant technical component to their product don't even know about, you know, security best practices, responsible disclosure, that they maybe should have a bug bounty program. Like, all of these practices are not necessarily universally known. I would say and that so, those are not only are they not universally known, I think they're pretty leading edge. Like bug bounties, yeah, and you don't I think hear they about tend it. From, to get dismissed yeah. as something very far fetched a lot of the time. Like it's yeah, something very fringe or far fetched. Just science fiction. We're gonna pay some random dude to fix our bug. Like I think a lot of them might think about it like that. Yeah, like oh, that's just inviting hackers or you know, you if you're not in well versed in the best practices in this space, those are reasonable. Like, I think it's reasonable to be very skeptical towards some of these things if it's the first time you hear of them. But if you hear about it from the FBI, that immediately lends a certain credibility. Yeah, it, it should issue concern too. Yeah, like if the FBI reaches out, to, you know, if some security researcher reaches out to you and says, hey, all this stuff is insecure, but here's how you should fix it, you might disregard them but if the fbi sets up a call and says hey you need to listen to this guy right and then it's a very different conversation and they offered the bug bounty like they're the ones who came up with it like during the call he was like oh i'll I'll pay you guys basically and and you tell me what you know what needs to be fixed so i came out of this 
thinking, okay, well, the researchers pretty much acted in good faith. There's the one question of them leaving, you know, trolling the the admins on their secure FTP or their unsecure FTP server. But outside of that, this I mean, the FBI wasn't concerned by that, so I don't know why I should be. But I don't know what, what's your general like takeaway of all this. Yeah, I thought that the security researchers were, yeah, they were well intentioned the entire time. They dealt with this very reasonably and professionally. You know, they couldn't like it would have been reasonable for them to send Atrium an email saying, "Hey, we discover Atrium, uh, we discovered this vulnerability. We are going to publish in ninety days, and if you want to take steps to resolve that before then, you can reach out to us or fix it on your own." Yeah. And that in itself is reasonable, but they went out of their way to reach out to the you know author of this article, who then worked with the FBI and to like really make sure that let's get this problem fixed. So, yeah, in my mind, they did nothing wrong. I think that uploading files to the FTP server was an unnecessary risk that they took, but I also can see the appeal if like you have these open systems in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing that actually just basically happened was I saw a tweet that Jesse Gill had emailed the researchers and we'll link to this in the show notes, but it's like, it's night and day between this, the article that was written and what we think happened and also this email. So I'll just read it real quick. So this is Jesse Gill to the researchers. And then, you know, there's some lawyers CT'd on this and, and the CEO. We write further to your email of earlier today and following your co-conspirators appearance at our company stand at the ICE trade fair in London, making certain statements regarding the security of our systems. You and your colleagues were responsible for unauthorized hacking of our demo platform in 2000, November 2018. And as a result, came into the possession of certain proprietary information of ours and our customers the confidential information. You and your co-conspirators demanded money from us in return for the confidential information. We are not prepared to recompense you for carrying out illegal activities and, in all caps, do not respond to threats. As you're aware, we con- we contacted the FBI regarding your illegal activities in November last year and now are now in contact with the relevant authorities in the United Kingdom, Europe, and Australia. Oh, shit. Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard. <laughs> we got Scotland Yard and Interpol on the line. We require you to immediately cease all further threats to us and our employees, representatives, customers, and advisors. Return all copies of confidential information in your possession. Identify where any of the confidential information is stored in electronic format. Blah, blah, blah. Don't need to read all this. You must not publish any of the confidential information or any information in relation. We have already done so. Yeah. <laughs> to the unauthorized hacking. Please confirm by return and by no later than 9 a.m. UK time tomorrow morning that you have and will comply with the contents of this communication. We're taking legal advice in respect of the actions. We're entitled to pursue against you and your co-conspirators in both civil and criminal proceedings. In the meantime, reserve all our rights in this regard. Uh, what you may feel has an impact on Atriant or our clients are based on fiction. That's a crazy last line. Yeah. and But it's. I don't think this is a particularly uncommon reaction. I think people often react to having disclo- vulnerabilities disclosed the same way as if they were that person just like hacked them maliciously. Yep. Although in this particular case, I think like this guy, clearly something is up with this guy. Yeah. So he might just be spinning this, like he might just be taking this stance uh, as a way to protect himself somehow in his right. mind. 
what you may feel has an impact on Atrian or our clients are based on fiction. Yeah, that last line is 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 super concerning. It's like he hasn't. So I mean, even if he was, if, even if he was hacked, then it should be concerning. Right, and you know, like it was one thing when even if he thought, oh, these two are malicious, and they're trying to extort me, you still need to fix the vulnerability. Right. Like no matter what, okay, you have to, the correct course of action would be fix it immediately and then use the FBI and Scotland Yard and Interpol and the Space Force and whoever you need to bring on <laughs> your side to, you know, go after the two people that hacked you and uh, secure the information that leaked, you know, assuming like, oh, they, they have the only copy or something. But to leave yourself open while doing all of this now, like this is on the front page of Hacker News, like that there's going to be some much less friendly people that are going to read this, get pissed off and take much more malicious action against them. Like there's a high likelihood of that happening yep. anyway. And you know, this is another case of Streisand effect. Right. Where, <laughs> although you, I don't know if you can even say they tried to cover this up because the guy assaulted him in a conference. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if that's applicable here. <laughs> um, I thought it'd be worth reading a couple of the comments on uh, Hacker News. So yeah. just because they, they break down like some of the worst case scenarios, which are pretty crazy. Atriant most, this is from Animats. Uh, Atriant mostly handles affinity cards and such. So they have a lot of info about customers, including driver license scans, but not much of a connection into the casino's main systems. A basic break-in might get you a sweet upgrade or free booze, a more ambitious hacker would obtain the casino's customer list with enough info to identify big losers and winners. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, except the article did point out there was those like cash draws or something that you could uh, enter multiple times. Huh. So it is a bit more than that. Here's another anecdote on the dangers of reporting this stuff. Cody 8295, they said, I was once fired from a state job in the US for bringing a vulnerability forward in an in the online ethics training, you can run set score 100, comma zero 100. Uh, that's code in the developer console and pass the exam without actually taking it. The state used a third-party online exam provider who I contacted. I was fired by the end of the week. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.